Hello, I'm here with Caitlin to talk about the sound of keystrokes. But before that, Apple, uh, Caitlin's got the three nanometer chips. Yeah, so we're finally at the point where we're at three nanometer chips. Now I know what you're thinking, everything's gonna change. That's only true if you are in the Apple ecosystem. So basically TSMC, which is the largest manufacturer of semiconductors, I mean, they're bigger than Intel, they're bigger than anyone other than TSMC. They basically have cornered the market. They've started working on three nanometer chips, which is ridiculous. I mean, what's the size of a silicon atom? About half a nanometer? So they got a ways to go, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So this three nanometer, so so three nanometers refers to how precise they can they can make the transistors on the chip. So essentially the way it works is it's a lot like um, developing photographs back in the old days where you have a large sheet and you project the image onto a small surface. So normally when you see a projector, it projects a small image onto a large screen. You sort of do the opposite and you're able to then project that image onto a very small, you know, wafer and then use some chemicals to essentially etch, etch out your transistors from the silicon. It's a bit more complex than that. And, I'm not going to get into you know dope, doping and everything like that, but that's the general process, and that that's when we talk about like three nanometers. So it's like how precise can you get the the image on the chip? I think they have to use electrons or something instead of light at that scale, but I'm not sure. They they're using very high powered and high frequency lasers, from my understanding. Okay. Anyway, so they um uh so they're getting the three nanometer. Uh, chips ready, but there's there's a snitch. There, there's a snitch in this plan. So even though TSMC is making it, Apple came along and said, we'll buy them all, please. <laughs> so, so all the three nanometer chips are going to be bought up by Apple. Um, and TSMC is, act is saying that they will eat up the cost because there's obviously going to be a lot of chips in the first run that are not going to be good. Um, you know, it, it, working with that fine of precision is... Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. But anyway, uh, you know, TSMC is going to eat up the cost for Apple because they want to keep Apple's business and Apple's going to get every single three nanometer chip on the market. Uh, so forget military applications, forget your smart. Well, I suppose if you have an Apple smartphone, but if you have any like mainstream PC, forget having three nanometers in there. It's all going to Apple for their Apple Silicon and their their iPhones and, and you know, Macs and stuff like that. So uh, this is the article I'm quoting from. This is from Ars Technica by Andrew Cunningham. Um, and I basically already went over the entire um, the entire article. So. so I guess that means that the upcoming Apple devices will be the most advanced in the hardware. They will have the smallest transistor size. That does not mean the most advanced. So the thing about Apple devices is that they're oftentimes very low powered and they don't have a very large die size. So even though they have the smallest transistors, they don't necessarily have the most transistors. So something like the AMD, um, what's it called? The Threadripper with its like giant die. It's like this big and, you know, you have to get a special motherboard for it. That's still going to be faster than all the Apple chips, but. But maybe not faster if, per unit of power. But, might... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I know I just saw that Apple is going to invest in ARM, 
which is real important to me because, you know, I just developed the ARM exploits for the exploit development class, and I just got the RISC-V exploits to add to that class because if ARM doesn't succeed in going public and making enough money, then it will decline and RISC-V might come up, but it's looking like Apple's going to hold up ARM. You know, I would really like RISC-V to, to come up. Uh, the problem with ARM is that it's a proprietary format. Basically, what happens is that when you want to build an ARM chip, you have to pay royalties to ARM in order to make the chip. And right. RISC-V is an open open format, so anyone can make chips. And it's and I just in computing, it is so important to have those open standards. Well, we have RISC-V, but it looks like ARM is the winner in the marketplace, and it's right. probably going to stay there if Apple holds it up. Right, and and that that's kind of unfortunate, <clears throat> but it's the way computers work. That's why we're all using. Intel architecture because Intel got in, they they got the market share. And even though it is technically possible to go in and make your own Intel clones, you know, very few people do it. Do you have to pay royalties to use Intel? Or did they make I don't I, I don't I, I don't think so because Intel made the specs for the x86, meaning the the opcodes and everything like basically open source and open document. So yeah. as long as you're not copying Intel's own designs for their chip, you can make your own. But x86 is such a complicated architecture and it is so bloated and ridiculous. No one other than like AMD is making Intel style chips anymore. Yeah. All right. Uh, by the way, this reminds me, I wanted to mention, uh, I've, we're teaching two workshops at DEF CON. We'll both be there. And I decided I can live stream them. So anybody can just join online. We'll give it a try and see how that works. I can't guarantee the quality of it, but hopefully we'll be able to uh, live stream it so people can participate remotely and for free. So just go to my samsonglass.info. I got the links for that. Anyway, um, so I was very interested in this article at uh, a substack, Carowind substack, that says language is a poor heuristic for intelligence. I believe the author is autistic. And what they explain is the fate of autistic people. And I've been interested in this for the last several years because um, I think most hackers are kind of on the spectrum towards Asperger's or autistic, probably including me, although certainly not to what they call autism. But one thing about autistic people is a lot of them cannot talk at all. And as he explains in this article wonderfully, this means a lot of people assume that they are profoundly mentally retarded and they treat them like they're a dog or something. They can't communicate the simplest concepts and they never... And the problem is they can't talk, but many of them are high intelligence. And there are people writing books and stuff that are autistic because if they finally get like a special keyboard or something that makes it possible for them to communicate, then you can find out that they have a rich inner life and high intelligence. But people that observe they can't talk assume they're very stupid. And this is not true. Now, some of them are profoundly mentally retarded, but some of them aren't. And just the fact that they can't talk is not a sufficient indication that they have no intelligence. And he points out the other side is what's happening right now. The large language models of ChatGPT can talk, so people conclude that they are intelligent, which is extremely false. They are very, very unintelligent. They have no idea what they're saying. They don't know the difference between truth and a lie. They don't understand when they contradict themselves. They, they don't have any idea what you're saying when you argue with them. It is, but they look intelligent because they can talk. So he just, that's his, his title explains it, you know, language is a poor heuristic for intelligence. And both of these are really important problems caused by people 
confusing those two things. So I thought it was a very interesting, well-written article and an interesting point. Anyway, let's go back to you with uh, face recognition problems. Yeah, so we've talked about biases in AI before on this podcast. And it's not entirely clear how how biased the AIs are, um, but it turns out they are very, very biased. Uh, so let me pull up the article here. This is from Insider by uh, Katie Hawk Hawkinson. Basically, in every case where police arrested someone due to AI facial recognition software identifying a possible criminal, that person, and, and this... And that person ended up just being innocent. They were basically falsely accused by the AI. Every single time that person was black. And this is what we talk about, you know, when we, we when we talk about things like institutional racism, it's it's not that the, you know, like the police, them like the police officers that went to arrest them, you know, they're not, they themselves are not, you know, out to like get, you know, people of color, but the systems in place definitely put people of color at a disadvantage in our society and unfortunately ai because it it uses you know patterns of behavior it, it picks up i'm not, I'm not going to say subconsciously but it repeats little subtle judgments of our society well it's and, just a pattern exactly pattern there yeah so it's, it's just it's looking for patterns and you know, and and if if we want to be truth truthful here, a lot of stereotypes are based on a grain of truth, right? Right. Um, and so, you know, there there might, you know, there there I I don't know any statistics about this, but I imagine that there's there's you know quite a few people living in poverty because they are people of color, and that you know get run into with the police. And once again, that goes back to institutional racism more than anything else. Uh, but then it just compounds compounds itself with these AI models, you know, that, you know, and so it just, it becomes institutionalized, not only within sort of areas of like the law and stuff like that, but even in our technology, sort of like the cameras that can't detect, you know, people of color's faces, like black people's faces, you know, it's AI can't figure out who's a criminal and who's not. It just looks at, you know, skin color and stuff. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I remember Lenovo like eight years ago came out with a face recognition laptop, but it didn't work if you were black. And exactly. uh, it seems, and I wonder why that is. I wonder if it's because they've trained it on 90% white faces or just because there's less contrast between the dark and the light in a picture or something like that. But it's certainly the case that the uh, facial recognition is very bad for black people. Well, if it's Lenovo, it was probably tested because Lenovo is a, a Chinese company. Mm -hmm. So it was probably tested in, in China where there's not a lot of yeah. darker skinned people yeah. and not a lot of social, you know, movement to get, you know, to be inclusive of people with darker skin tones. And so those, those technologies come out here in the West where we are, we do try to be more inclusive and we are aware of, you know, institutional racism and technological racism, but we don't, you know, but it, it still comes out anyway. And, you know, this kind of touches on our political issues and also the issue of art censorship. The question is, because what the AI does is it finds a pattern and then it just amplifies the current patterns that already exist. And you could say it should try to make the world better, 
but it's only trying to model the world as it is. And people say this about artists, like artists shouldn't portray people doing bad things. And they say, art is just a reflection of society. Yeah. It's an interesting issue. Some people think you should use these things to improve society. Other people think you should just express it the way it is. Anyway, um, it's certainly uh, the case. And I'm not, even before AI, I was in cop watch in Berkeley and you just follow the cops around and you'd watch them. They'd hear a, a police report saying a black person did a bad thing. And they would just grab a random black person. That's totally the wrong person with no concern at all. They've solved the crime. It, it certainly is the case that they're frequently functionally very racist. And I, I wonder to what extent it's unconscious. There's, there's unconscious biases, right? Yeah. Um, but there's also institutional biases that that I think affects affect policing more so than the unconscious biases. I, I think that any individual cop is more influenced by the fact that our justice system is inherently racist, rather than they themselves as individuals are racist. I think a lot of them had the attitude that all black people are criminals and we should just arrest them. It doesn't matter if we frame them for the wrong thing. I think that was a fairly common belief at the time. This was a couple of decades ago. Yeah, decades ago, that would have been the case. I, I think I think today it's there, there's still an element of that. To, and it's, it really depends where you are. But I think most police get sensitivity training and stuff like that nowadays, at the very least. So they're at least aware. But the, there's still that institutional biases that go into policing that you can't escape from. Yeah. Anyway, um, so there's an art. Uh, official uh, scientific publication here by several authors and rxiv.org is where they published the open source or the openly available version of it called GPU First, Execution of Legacy CPU Codes on GPUs. Now, currently, if you have code that was compiled for a CPU and you want to put it on a GPU, you have to do a whole lot of work into rewriting the code to plan it to run on the graphics processing unit. But these guys have automated the process. So you can take legacy apps and just recompile them at their special compiler and it will run on the GPU and run 14 times faster, of course, because the GPU has many more parallel cores than any CPU. So it is a big leap forward in that regard. And uh, I would imagine, although I didn't see this in the paper, that it also saves a lot of power. So I think this might be uh, a very useful thing for legacy apps. So I was excited to see that. And now let's go to the big story, listening to you type. Yeah, so this is a this is a theoretical attack. Uh, I'll just pull up the article right away and not bury the lead like usual. Uh, so Lucas uh, Ropek has an article on, what is this, Gizmodo? And let's see, someone else, Bill Toles has this article on bleeping computer. They're the same thing. But essentially researchers have figured out um, that there is a cadence and sound to the way you type. And you can use AI to find patterns within those cadences, within those sounds, like, you know, the space bar. So I'll pick up my keyboard here. Uh, the space bar, of course, sounds very different than the Y key, which sounds different than the backspace key. And um, if you, you know, add cadences to that, because as you know, you, you generally type with two hands and there's a certain cadence to typing. Um, AI can sort of listen to that, I suppose, uh, and figure out what you're typing. And this has been an attack on my mind for, for a while is, you know, because you sometimes see people with their hands down in videos typing. And if you can 
sort of figure out how their arms are moving and put together the sounds, you should be able to get a good idea about what they're typing. And for me, what this means is that I think our, the days of using passwords are coming to an end. We cannot trust passwords to keep our stuff secure anymore because AI will be too good at stealing them, right? Like you make a video, someone just glances at you putting in your password. It doesn't matter if they're far away, as long as you can get audio and or video of them doing it, you know, the AI can then just piece together what your password is. And so I think we're going to be moving to a two-factor at the very least, uh, but mostly, you know, biometrics um, as well as like what you have. Uh, so that if people can see it and record it, like, you know, people can see and record, I don't know, um, you know, my hands and these calipers, but it's not, and if, if this was a second factor and, you know, my fingerprints were a first factor, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, you can't steal it through recording, but like you can with a password. So just passwords days are coming to an end in the next decade or two, I think. Oh, I think, well... Uh, I would say passwords probably will not go away. They will remain what they are now, the weakest, lowest bar in security. But I mean, there'll always be a market for the cheapest, easiest thing for low security applications. But I think more and more people are moving away from passwords and that'll continue. Yeah. But um, they're ter maybe terrible for a long time anyway. People can guess them. They're often chosen off lists. You know, there's just, and it's too irritating to remember them all. So passwords are just really, really, very awkward and very low security, but the cheapest and easiest to implement. So I think they'll they'll remain as like the bottom feeding uh, weak front line of security. Right, like I said, I think it's going to take decades to face it out because yeah. we're we're going to need something that everyone has yeah. to act as an alternative to passwords. And I think most people have, you know, smartphones. And if we start phasing in smartphones as our first factor via biometrics. Well, well, sure, but then, but not everybody has a smartphone, and not everybody has a smartphone all the time. There'll be some people using keyboards and kiosks and stuff. So, I think, I think passwords will always be there uh, as the like default bottom rung alternative. And anyway, we'll we'll see. But certainly, I want to move away from passwords. I'm really tired of this nonsense, and I have a password manager, and and uh, now I have more of the. App, automatic Apple sharing of, of things, logins between devices and almost everything important now is two-factor authentication with biometrics for me. So it's going there. And I think that Apple just had this passport they approved and I think Chrome has it too. This uh, basically uh, uh, has this H key backed up by biometrics to replace your password. So, so it's coming. Anyway, um, and the last one here, was pretty interesting from a policy point of view. There's an article on darkreading.com talking about software attestation and talking about new government policies, which I did not know about. The government is passing policies um, saying now they've declared that any organization selling software to the U.S. government is required to attest that it conforms with secure software development practices outlined in the NIST Secure Software Development Framework. And that means you have to attest not only that all the software you write obeys that, but all the libraries you use were developed using that procedure. And this is close to the end of open source. I mean, most open source software is written by random volunteers in a foreign country. You don't even know who they are. You don't know what process they used. And so you'd have to stop using all that stuff 
And in the long run, I guess this is probably a step up in security that everybody should actually use modern practices to write their software. But for the next decade, I think it'll be a huge problem because everybody needs all those open source libraries. And what are you going to do? Rewrite them all in your company? It's uh, Hopefully, well, I think what people are hoping is there will be a movement to actually move better practices into the open source community and have more open source products actually perform this attestation so you can include them. But realistically, how many of these open source things written by volunteers are ever going to bother doing that? How many open source projects really care if their product gets sold to a government? They're not going to get any of the money. This seems like a, a really difficult transition. And I know you, you've you come across it. Uh, what do you think of it, Caitlin? Yes. Uh, so back when I was working with the government, I wrote some software that made use of a library called Curl. And um, the- Which everybody uh, does. I mean, how do you write anything without using libraries like that? Exactly. And, and it was, yeah, it was, it was already installed on all of our um, like Mac laptops, obviously, because Mac comes with Curl. It's on all our Linux- secure Linux distros that that NIST says we should be using. And so I'm like, okay, we'll use curl. It, it's not default on Windows, but I just got the Windows binary. Well, now and, with, uh, with uh, WSL, it's actually in Windows too. Go ahead. Exactly, with WSL. But, um, mm -hmm. you know, I was like, okay, I need to use curl, um, you know, and this is going to be fine. Uh, but, you know, they were instituting the, these, these new policy changes and they saw that I was using curl and they were like, okay, we have to, you know, make sure that this is okay to use. And they contacted the person who makes curl. And it was this huge kerfuffle of you know, like it was so silly because it's curl. Everyone knows curl. It is the most popular, you know, one of the most popular pieces of software ever created. It's used everywhere. It's I well, but, but I've yeah. never been through any of these uh, modern inspections or auditing to see if it's using modern practices apparently not um and and it, it it should be it should be audited or whatever but it it is a little silly at times you know right like like there's there's like NIST says we should be using um like red hat enterprise linux for example with you know se linux and all that stuff um, that has curl, you know, pre-installed, but that's all open source software and none of that's been attested to. So there's a lot of conflict about, you know, how, how do we implement this? How do we get open source in there? Because we're not going to abandon open source. Open source has proven itself as being relatively secure. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the big breach that happened um, recently or within the last few years, which is SolarWinds, that was proprietary software, not open source software. Yeah. So the idea that, you know, open source software is this big risk is is this not entirely founded. I don't think that open source security practices are necessarily the best, but are they necessarily vulnerable? I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen too much of that. Usually uh, things get picked up because it's, it's open source. Um, once in a while, something gets through like the smiley face backdoor for, for VSFTP. But, yeah. you know, it, it it gets picked up and it gets patched right away. Um, so, well, yeah. there was uh, the SSH vulnerability that got everywhere for two years before it was caught. Um, but that wasn't an intentional vulnerability. That was. Oh, sure. Well, I, mean, I don't think people are thinking about intentional vulnerabilities. You're thinking about usual mistakes. But I mean, it's why I think realistically, there's going to have to be a movement to audit all that legacy code to bring it up to standards. And then you'll have some 
special library of open source products that do in fact have the attestation, but then they're going to fall out of date. How are you going to have updates that now obey the right process? Realistically, this is a big problem. And it kind of means that you have to stop having open source code written by volunteers and start having it written by paid professionals who meet modern standards. And then it's not no. really the open source community anymore. No, what, what, what you need is for major open source projects to be, you know, certified and attestated as attestated by CIST. So you have volunteers or people at, 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 um, NIST. at, at, well, yeah, or NIST, uh, either NIST or, or CISA. CISA, yeah. Yes. NIST or, sorry. Well, well NIST or CISA going through, figuring, yeah. you know, and, and just sort of testifying that, okay, th this looks good. This is fine. You know, this is okay. And just go through it one by one and just get a list of open source software that's approved. But then what happens in six months when there are updates for a bunch of them? How do you know that the process of putting on the updates meets your standard? Well, you you don't. You 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 attest to it for yeah. say two yeah. years. You say for two years this this is looks good. Well, we'll go come back to it in two years. Oh, good. So and for two years we're going to use two years out of date software without the patches because no, no you accept the patches. You accept the patches, but but you, you attest that up to up to this point it's been fine. No, you cannot attest to the process, software development process used to develop those patches. I think that we've got a real problem here. Well, what you can do is attest to the, uh, that the that the open source project is at least well-written, you know, and. I, I but what they, that's what bothers me. They're asking you to attest to the software development practices. And therefore, not the quality of it at a certain time, which you could do with an audit, but that their practices meet your practice standards. And that sort of ends open source free work. It means everybody has to be within a, a, a corporate structure being audited, you know. Yeah, except that we know that. Yeah, we know that that does not work. We know that that, that corporate structure does not keep us safer. Um well, yeah, there's an, that's another problem. You kind of, yeah. like you say, this all is in response to SolarWinds, but SolarWinds did not come from the open source pieces. The problem yes. was the open source pieces. This, um, this reminds me of like the power grid failed in Texas because the legacy fossil fuel stuff froze up and the um, environmentally sustainable green stuff stayed up. And so they punished the green stuff and built more fossil fuel in response. It's, um, yeah, anyway, that's what I think. I think we got a problem here. But I, I, you know, the U.S. government is built on open source software. Believe it or not, I mean, yes, they use a lot of Microsoft stuff. Yeah, a lot of Microsoft stuff, but they also use a lot of open source stuff. And they're not going to throw away the open source stuff because anyone who works with the open source stuff knows that it does its job and it's not inherently insecure. So, yeah. Well, realistically, what you propose is probably what we're going to have to do, which is like safe harbor with Europe. We're going to have to have some kind of legal runaround where uh, there is some kind of exception made for popular accepted legacy things from open source that they don't have to meet these standards. It reminds me a lot of medicine. You know, a big issue in medicine, I was horrified when I discovered this, like 90% of all drugs have never been through like randomized controlled trials. Instead, they have our legacy drugs that sort of developed by the old system of just sort of anecdotal evidence from, from doctors and midwives, and people have the general belief that they work, and they're not willing to go perform the randomized trials now. So we have a whole bunch of products that are not developed with modern standards that we continue to use. 
Yeah. And the whole thing about open source is you can't, I mean, what you can't, you can never attest to that that all the developers are full time here. It, it lends itself to having students and hobbyists yeah. come in and work on the projects. And the the question is, you know, are the people in charge of the project are they qualified? You know, to weed out you know bad code, you know, and do they keep the code you know safe, up to date, and that kind of stuff? That's what you have to look at. It's not each developer, but who's in charge of the project, well, and sure. is it being professionally you know taken care of? But in these open source projects, that lead developer is often a volunteer, often an overt volunteer, and then they rage quit and some new volunteer appears and they aren't going to pass any kind of formal test to prove they're competent or something. They don't necessarily have a degree or an official uh, auditing process on the code or any of the stuff they're going to want. It's a problem. No, but if if you go onto GitHub, you can get a, a list or, or history of you know commits. And you yeah. can see what's been pulled in, what's what's not been pulled in, um, yeah. you know, and just look over the general quality of, quality of the code. And you can just make an assessment based on that, whether or not this is something that would be okay to run on a government system. Yeah, it is. Um, it is the, the deplorable state of security. It's just very far from a science. It's really just sort of an art, like looking at stuff. Does it look good enough? Yeah. Yeah. I well, mean, you know, there's, there's one of the things that you always just have to remember is that there's always a possibility that someone's going to destroy your security, right? No matter how careful you are, no matter what precautions you take, you're never 100% secure. And so you just go in with the mindset of, well, the attackers are already on my network probably. And you you work from it from there. You don't, it, it is a fool's game to try to like, create software that'll not hackable whatsoever. And you're never going to get a single hack on your network. That is silly. Just assume they're on there yeah, and sort of design accordingly from that. Yeah. Well, that's the zero trust architecture they're talking about. And, you know, I think, I think the, um, the fundamental thing to understand is that all these government regulations and rules are just another tool to implement security. And it's easy. They can be used in a way that improves security and they can be used in a way that just hinders security. You just have right. to sort of carefully apply these things. Right. Yeah, no, The I, I was just going to say, I don't want to call it zero trust because that's been a, a ruined term. It doesn't really mean anything, but it makes more sense if you are designing your network and you just assume it's already been breached. I thought that was zero trust. Zero. I mean, zero trust is is you. It's it's sort of the same thing, but it's more nebulous. Yeah. Like it doesn't really. There's nothing. If I say zero trust, like I have a zero trust network, what does that mean? Whereas if I say I am, um, building this network and I assume it's been breached, what does that mean? Well, it means you're building in lots of detections, right? You're yeah. looking for the people that are on there. Um, you are making sure that you're looking for people pivoting, strange behavior, you know, that kind of stuff. So it, like I said, I don't, I don't like zero trust. I, I think that's a useless term, but. Um, yeah, well, but it is the one recommended by CISA and the government agencies now. Yep. So it's just, I remember the new terms always get sort of polluted, but uh, I think it makes sense. Zero trust means that you don't have, you used to have a boundary, a network boundary, and then a trusted network inside the boundary. And they're saying, don't do that. Every request for service that comes over the network should be regarded with suspicion and inspected before you trust it. That's that's the idea. But Right. But you're still trusting it in the end. 
So the idea that there's zero trust is oh okay well, I, well, yeah. well sure but yeah, I mean it's, you don't have any region that you trust completely right you have some level of mistrust and you make some kind of judgment of how fishy this looks before accepting anything exactly like I said I, I think it's better to think in terms of your network has already been breached yeah you know, act accordingly okay I'm, I'm more. A more precise term would be something like uh, quantifying risk. Right. Everything. Yeah. All right. Well, good. Well, I think that's it for this one. And we'll have another one on Friday, I imagine, depending on what sort of madness goes on at DEF CON. Uh, I'm, no way I'm making it on Friday. Oh, okay. You'll be busy on Friday, right? I don't know what's going on. I'm... Yeah, yeah. But, but DEF CON will probably be pretty distracting. Yeah. We'll see. All right, uh, I'm stopping this one.